study on the uh, Muslim religion, or the religion, religion of Islam, I guess, would be more accurate. And remember, our purpose from the first is, number one, to satisfy some curiosity and learn something about it because of what is happening in the world and has been happening for some time, especially in the Middle East and the way it affects us. And a lot of this is tied in to the, the Islam religion. And then also, from the standpoint of uh, those of us as, as Christians, knowing understanding so that we can actually attempt to reach these people when we come in contact with them. By the way, there's, there's more and more Muslims in, in this country. The Muslims, I believe, are potentially uh, one of the best people to reach from a Christian standpoint. And I believe that because of their strong belief in God. They're just a very, very, very strong belief in God. Although they do not believe in Jesus as the Son of God, they have a lot of uh, very positive beliefs about Jesus. Uh, they have positive beliefs about a number of characters uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, another reason, I think, to, to try to understand it is that some of the things are going on, that are going on in the Middle East are going on because, I believe, a misunderstanding of Christians uh, of some things in the Bible that has caused a lot of hatred to exist between the Muslims and, and those that profess Christianity. Uh, up to this point, we've looked at Muhammad, the prophet, and dealt with his birth and some things in his life. And then we looked at some things in the religion itself. I'm going to give just a brief review, and then tonight... I'm going to read some excerpts from the Koran. Uh, Tim and Christy got me uh, several books, another book on understanding Islam, and then also uh, the Koran. I've got two books. I've read about half the Koran and a good chunk of this one here. And the Koran, there's a lot of things in it that are pretty interesting, but one of the things that, that it does for me as uh, like books that I've read, to read it is in many ways to appreciate the Bible. And I wouldn't say that to be disrespectful to anybody that is of that or anything. I mean, I just sat down and, and just read it, just thinking about nothing except the material itself. And, and it really is a contrast in the, uh, the way it's worded, uh, the way the material is handled, uh, what is uh, expected of people uh, in the way of belief and the reason for that expectation. Uh, the whole tenor is quite a bit different than what we would find in the Bible, and yet you can tell that the author of this material uh, definitely had been influenced uh, by a number of things in both the Old and, and New Testament scriptures. Okay, briefly now, we have the birth of Muhammad. Uh, by the way, the word Muhammad simply means the, the praised one, uh, born about 570. He, he lives to be about 62 and so that puts him from 570 up to what? About 632 or 3 BC or AD before he's killed. Uh, he does not begin receiving revelations or what they believe are revelations until he's 40 years of age or about 610 AD. He marries a wealthy woman when he's 25. Uh, the fact that he's married to a wealthy woman allows him to concentrate full time on what he's interested in and he was interested in religion. He was born in Mecca. Mecca was not only a center of trade in that part of the world. Mecca, by the way, is in the country now known as Saudi Arabia, but there was no Saudi Arabia then, but uh, Saudi Arabia today. It was also the center of religious thought 
in that part of the world. Uh, the predominant religions centered around belief in various idols. It was polytheism or the belief in many gods. Now, of these many gods that were believed in in that area, there was Allah, and Allah was the chief of those gods. And so this concept of one god, they had a belief in many gods, but they also believed that there was one god that was supreme over the others. Now, Allah is simply an Arabic word that means God. In fact, uh, one thing was interesting in reading uh, from this book here that they got me is that the Muslims, although uh, you'd never know it from what I've heard of the Muslims in this country, but the educated Muslims really don't like to use the term Allah in this country because, see, uh, they don't believe that God should not uh, be identified in any way as a person. He has no name. He's just the eternal one, the, the creator. And when you say Allah in the Arabic language, what you're literally saying is God in English. And so they believe that in English-speaking countries, it ought to just be God. And so they actually would prefer, in an English-speaking country, they actually would prefer the use of the term God. And when they say Allah, they are saying just simply God. All right, now, although that Allah was the chief of the deities in that area, uh, Muhammad makes it very clear that the God he believes in is not that chief deity, uh, that the God he believes in is the God of the Hebrews and the Christians. And so Muhammad is, is born in a religious center in Mecca, has contact with a lot of idolatrous practice, but although he has contact with that idolatrous practice in his upbringing, there were a number of religious scholars in that area that already were rejecting idolatry. In other words, even in that, the city of Mecca, there were a number of theologians and religious scholars uh, that totally scoffed at the idea of, of idolatry or scoffed at the idea of many gods. They believed in one God. So Muhammad uh, didn't sit down and originate anyone. He had contact with these people that believed in, in the one God. Uh, he also had contact with both Jewish and uh, Christian teaching. And based on the con contact of the theologians in Mecca, uh, the influence of both Jews and Christians, uh, he and his own experiences in life, he developed his theology. Okay, Muhammad was by all indications an epileptic. Uh, in antiquity, we noted that uh, uh, people of epilepsy were believed to be possessed by demons. And Muhammad grew up thinking he was possessed uh, by a demon. It was his wife that persuaded him that it wasn't a demon, but rather it was God uh, that, was, that was trying to communicate with him. And so she finally convinced him and others that he actually had been chosen as an apostle or a prophet of God. And so he begins then in 610, having been convinced. And so it's interesting, we noted before, that Muhammad becomes convinced that he's a prophet of God actually by his wife and others. And his first understanding was this thing was actually demon possession. All right, the book that that we identify as the Koran was uh, written, was given to Muhammad uh, over a period of 22, 23 years, from 610 when he started at 40 years of age until about uh, his death in 632-33 A.D. And so the Koran is the, number one, the work of one man, and it's his utterances or oracles given over a period of 22 years uh, most of which written down by others and then communicated and believed to be the word of God. And their belief was that Muhammad was simply a vessel 
that God is literally, when you read the Koran, that God is literally speaking through Muhammad, and Muhammad is just simply the vessel that's being used. Now, here's another thing that was interesting to me that uh, was pointed out again in the, the source that Tim and them gave me, that uh, from the standpoint of credentials on Muhammad, Muhammad never even made any claim for the miraculous. And that's, that's unusual among uh, those. He didn't even make the claim, nor did his followers make it for him. And so this man is being accepted as a... He made no claim to be able to tell the future. He made no claim of the miraculous, and nobody made the claim for him. And there was nothing in any miraculous sense that centered, centered around him. And so his being embraced as a prophet is strictly on the basis of his assertion. It's that simple. Uh, Muhammad and others assert that he is a prophet. Uh, they make no claim for any kind of miraculous evidence behind it. Now, the reason that's interesting, because contrast that with the Bible, when uh, the revelations given by God in the Bible always came with something of a miraculous nature as credentials. Uh, for example, that uh, Moses, who, who gave us the material, uh, gathering part of it, seeing part of it, part of it revealed, but anyway, responsible for the majority of the material in the first five books. And remember Moses, when he was told to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh that he was a prophet of God, and then to go to the Israelites, tell his prophet, if you'll remember, his, his first question is that they won't believe me. And so then God gave him those miraculous signs specifically to cause belief. All right, nobody, absolutely nobody, Egyptian or Hebrew, came to believe that Moses was a prophet except through those miraculous. And that's it. In other words, nobody bought that Moses was a prophet except through the miraculous that took place. All right, next, Moses dies and Joshua is a prophet that replaces him. Joshua is exalted as a prophet of God whenever they cross through the Jordan River and the water stands up like the Red Sea did with Moses. Uh, whenever they went in and took uh, Jericho, and when, uh, obviously, events began to transpire that showed that God was with him in some supernatural way, only then did the Israelites embrace Joshua as a prophet of God. All right, as we move on through, we run into a great prophet like uh, Samuel, and we find the words that none of, none of his words fell to the ground. Uh, and we read the story of Samuel, and we find that he was, a, he was called a seer. And he had established himself as a prophet of God based on his ability to foretell things that had actually came to pass in the lives of individuals. And based on that, he was recognized. All right, this was in harmony with what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18.22, that one of the ways that you would know a prophet of God is that when he spoke, that what he said would, would follow. If it did not, he spoke it presumptuously. Okay, we go all the way through the Old Testament. Never do we find anybody revealing any kind of new information except there is something of the supernatural tied in as evidence. All right, then we come to the New Testament and, and miracles by the score and above surround Jesus. And even Jesus states that you shouldn't believe in him. He said, if I don't do the works of my father, then don't believe me in John 10, 37. But even if, if I do those works, then you believe me, even though you don't understand. He set the apostles out. 
and their credentials was the miraculous. So, now we haven't proved, we've just talked about claims, but suffice it to say that here's a unique difference. In the Bible, no one is expected to believe anything is a revelation from God except it is tied to the miraculous, to the supernatural, okay? And, and you judge between the false and true prophets on, on whether or not that's one of the judges, whether or not it's tied. Uh, the church at Ephesus was complimented because they tested those who said they were apostles and were not. And Paul said all the signs of an apostle, a true apostle, were wrought through him when writing to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. Okay, now, here we come to uh, Muhammad. And Muhammad claims to be a prophet. There is absolutely no claim of the miraculous. There's no foretelling. There is nothing special about Muhammad. In fact, they don't even claim that he's anything more than a mere man. And Muhammad never claimed to be a mere man. He doesn't claim to be a perfect person. He does not claim to be the most virtuous person around. And so here is a guy who doesn't even make the claim that he's the most virtuous person around. Nobody claims he's the most virtuous person around. There's no miraculous. And his claim to be a prophet is based on assertion. Okay, so if you was talking now, let's get back to our purpose in looking at this. If you was looking at somebody, talking to somebody that is a Muslim, if I was, that would be one of the first things I'd point out, that uh, I haven't proved the Bible's inspired by what I've said, but I believe it can be proven. But it's interesting to me that, that the Koran approaches Revelation exactly the opposite of the way the Bible does. In fact, the Bible would actually, by definition, tell you to reject this. There, there's simply no credentials here to, to expect this man. Now, the next question I would ask a, a Muslim is, when anyone speaks, whether it's Muhammad or Jesus or Moses or whoever it is, if there is nothing there of the supernatural, supernatural in the way of information or, or in events, how could you possibly know that it was a revelation from God, even if it was? In other words, we have Jesus giving us this teaching that sounds very good, or uh, whoever it may be, but if there is nothing of the supernatural in any way tied, how in the world could you know that uh, that message was from God? You can't. You couldn't. I don't, I don't see how anybody. Uh, uh, and so I tell a Muslim, if... Although I find the, the teaching of Jesus very appealing and inwardly identify with it, no. There is no way I could accept his claims without some kind of evidence. Do they, uh, you said a while ago that uh, Muhammad said he believed in the, the Jewish and the Christian God? Mm hmm Okay, now are they saying that Allah and God are the same person or is Allah another God? Allah is God. Is God uh -huh. the same, Christian, same God, Jewish God? Same, same. In other words, they, they specify that it's the God of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, Jesus. It's exactly the same God. In other okay, words, they make it clear. Do they recognize any of the miracles that Jesus did? Okay, now this is overlooked. That this is what's uh, interesting. Uh, on that, they first of all, here are the inspired things that they recognize. They recognize the Pentateuch, the five books by Moses. So Moses is a great writing prophet. They recognize the Psalms by David, the great king. Okay? So the, the, the Torah or the Pentateuch, we call the five books of Moses, they recognize. They recognize the Psalms by David. They recognize the Gospels of Jesus. 
Now, not necessarily, they don't recognize the interpretation that you do. And they believe there's some perversions there. But the gospel of Jesus is a, is a, is a source they recognize. And then they recognize the coin. And so there are four sources of revealed truth is the law, the Psalms, the Gospels, uh, and, the, and the Koran. Okay, then the, the, the observation to a Muslim would be that since we're talking about the same God, why is it that in the Old and New Testament scriptures he deemed it necessary to have something of the supernatural to confirm, but now with Muhammad, who supposedly is the last and the greatest and the final prophet, he uses nothing whatsoever in the way of the miraculous uh, to occur. That's interesting. I mean, that, and that's what I would say. I wouldn't say he's false and turn, turn him off right then. I'd say that's interesting to me. And then I'd ask him that question that, you know, we just talked about. How would you, how could you know anybody, anything was from God without any evidence? I mean, if you're going to believe on assertion, then why can't anybody? make an assertion and claim to be from God. In what book is the prediction of Jesus riding in on a donkey? Zechariah. Do they recognize Zechariah? No, not as, not as, uh, not in the way that, that we would. But that wouldn't, uh, I don't know that that particular thing would impress them, uh, you know, on that, but they... Well, I mean, you could ask them, did, did Muhammad come into town on a donkey? Yeah. Well, no, no, they don't, they believe that uh, there were certain prophecies of the Messiah. And that Jesus fulfilled them. Okay, they have no problem with, with that on the thing. Didn't you say the first night too that they recognized the resurrection? Yes. No. I said that some, they, not in the same sense you do. Now, what they do recognize, and I'm going to read some excerpts from the Koran, okay. they recognize the virgin birth of Christ. Okay. Now, that's interesting. Now, the resurrection, they believe that Jesus was executed and his spirit went into paradise. Okay. In other words, they don't believe that he was literally bodily resurrected, but that his spirit went into paradise. Uh, among some of the Muslims, uh, there is the, and this is a small sect of the Muslims, they have the, the swoon theory, that Jesus did not actually die, and then he appeared later to his apostles. In other words, they just thought he was dead and put him in the tomb and all. But that's just a small sect of the Muslims. Most of them believe that he actually died, and his spirit went into Hades. All right, now... Going back to what they believe. Now, they we're talking about the, uh, the Muslims themselves. And remember, the basis of their belief is coming from, the, from Muhammad. Okay, they, they go back to Adam, just like we do, and, and the sin and the garden all. And they come from Adam to Noah, and God destroying the earth with a flood and everything like that, and that righteous being saved. They come from Noah to Abraham. All right, Abraham becomes the basis for their religion, uh, just like the Jews go back to Abraham. And so Abraham comes from idolatrous parents, but he comes to know the one true God. And so then Abraham leaves his homeland that's in idolatry, having come to know the one true God. Okay, Abraham uh, marries Sarah, and then he has, takes Hagar and has Ishmael. All right, and then Sarah has Isaac. They embrace all of that. But now, when Abraham went to offer Isaac, as a sacrifice, you know, that was Ishmael, okay? And so the Jews have twisted this thing around and distorted the scripture. It was Ishmael, the first, he was the first son. And so Abraham went to offer Ishmael and, and he was the one who was tested. Now, Hagar with Ishmael got kicked out of Abraham's household because of the jealousy of Sarah, okay? 
Well, then after they got kicked out of Abraham's, then uh, Hagar took Ishmael, and they made this journey, and they wound up in Mecca. Okay. Oh, this is by their lore or whatever. Uh-huh. See, Mecca is the birth of birthplace of Muhammad. And so, okay. a, so Sarah and Ishmael leave, and then they wind up in Mecca. All right, Ishmael then becomes the father of the Arabs. And All right. This from the Quran is where we get this information. Yeah, right? from Muhammad. But yeah, from Muhammad. And also from history. Huh? Was it oh yeah. Really it's that's history too. Isn't right. Yeah, uh, Ishmael is the it would be the father uh, of of the Arabs. Okay, <laughs> but I'm saying that we we have him. See, Muhammad's from Mecca, and so Muhammad picks up on the story. Okay, he knows that Muhammad knows about Abraham, and he knows that Ishmael is a follower of the Arabs, and he's a, and he's an Arab, and so he goes back and reinterprets this, and he said it wasn't Isaac that was offered up; it was Ishmael, and the only reason that Ishmael was kicked out is because of the jealousy of uh, of Sarah. In other words, God didn't have anything to do with that; it was the jealousy of Sarah. But in the providence of God, God used it. And so Hagar and Ishmael wind up in Mecca. Okay? And then it's there that they take the knowledge of this one true God. Over a period of time, it becomes perverted, but Allah remains the supreme of all the various gods. And then it awaits for Muhammad to come on the scene and straighten everybody out and let them know that it's just Allah. Uh, no other supreme, it's just Allah. All right, then he goes back, and the indications, like we've talked before, is that, that he really never read the New Testament, or had it read to him, or even the Gospels, but that he's come in contact with some of the, what we would refer to as the Apocrypha Gospels, perverted Gospels, works of the Gnostics, and things like that. And so he really has not had contact with the pure New Testament and Christianity by all indication, you know, but he definitely knows a lot of the material. All right, in the Old Testament then, he takes off with Abraham, and they go back to Abraham as Father Abraham, and then Ishmael, and then, uh, of course, you've got the Arab people. All right, now Muhammad comes on the scene, and he's had contact with Judaism and Christianity, and he's had contact with, with the, the many gods in his background, which is at Mecca. So what does Muhammad do? Keep in mind he has not come in contact with pure Christianity, and it's the belief of uh, one of the scholars we studied from that had Muhammad, Muhammad come in contact with pure Christianity, there's a good chance he may have been a Christian, but he didn't, okay? So Muhammad looks at this, and he's got the Jews claiming the one true God, and that makes sense to him. And the top theologians of his own city is claiming there's just one God. It makes sense to him. Well, the Christians, on the one hand, say they believe in one God, but they talk about three. And they have, they've got God the Father, Jesus the Son of God, who's equal with God, and the Holy Spirit, so they've got three separate people. And they say, that this is a contradiction. You're saying one God, but you're saying three separate persons. Well, then on top of that, he knows about Mary and the Catholic concept, and so you've got Mary, the mother of God. And you've got Christians praying to Mary. You know, I'm talking about from his experience. So... Although there are certain elements of Christianity that's appealing to him, the most appealing thing seems to be to Muhammad is the life of Jesus. He's impressed with his life. He's impressed with a lot of the teaching. But this idea that he was God and the idea that Mary is the mother of God and the, and the thing of praying to Mary and, and then the Catholic concept of having uh, the uh, inner saints you know, between you and God 
just was illogical in his thinking. So this man is arriving at his conclusion, coming to in contact with these three bodies of information, and he takes what he believes is true out of each. But can't, can't you see that given his contact with uh, Gnosticism and this Catholic concept and all of God, that it would be very easy for him to arrive at the conclusion that he did. So then what he winds up doing, he winds up coming to the conclusion that Jesus was a prophet and that Jesus never claimed to be the Son of God. And it was after his death that they claimed he was the Son of God. But Jesus himself never claimed it that he was just simply a great prophet. But the interesting thing is, he has, the Koran has Jesus born of a virgin. That's interesting. And, and so, in other words, that uh, to reject his deity, but yet have him born of a virgin. But then he makes the statement in the Koran, well, God can do anything he wants. That what's the big deal that God made Jesus from a virgin? You know, well, like uh, John the Baptist saying, he can raise up children of Abraham from the rocks uh, out there. So that's no big deal to him, but he, he does embrace that on the part of Jesus. Now, in the Koran, every chapter that I read starts out with something about God, or Allah, the merciful and the benevolent and the compassionate. In other words, there's always a statement about his being merciful and compassionate. But as you read the Koran, and I've read a little over half of it, there's very little about mercy and compassion. It's mostly about justice and judgment and the wrath of God. The, all the various scholars that I've read from, and it bears into my, the, the, in other words, what they said is, I think, would bear the observation out as you read the Koran. The, the motivation for keeping the Koran and for pursuing your, your faith in the uh, Islam religion is fear. Uh, the, there is very little about the love of God. Uh, the emphasis in Christianity is on love. The emphasis here is on damnation, the judgment, and fear. And so, given, given the fact that you've got a concept that is superior to the polytheism in that environment, and given the fact that there are a lot of truths out of both the Old and New Testament that are put in this, that I can see how that uh, this was sensible. And you're, you're talking to uh, a people, keep in mind, that are not the most educated in the world. Okay, and, and, and this is the, the concept going out in that background. And then I can see as, as people that are educated even and are brought up in this and who have not sat down and read the New Testament for themselves or examined the evidences for the resurrection, etc. And they look at Christianity from uh, looking through Catholicism and, and see it and looking at Christianity in the world. See, there's a lot of things that people in the name of Christianity accept that a devout Muslim will not, will not accept at all. In other words, women run around on the beaches like, uh, uh, where's Angie? Talking about the people at Lipscomb and others, you know, that running out there on the beaches uh, and things like that. That would be shocking to a Muslim, and yet Christians, see, endorse that. Uh, the, uh, the, uh, the emphasis on any number of non-spiritual things uh, would be repugnant to them. You know, and our, our system of justice uh, doesn't seem to be uh, really justice to them. And so our R-rated movies, uh, pornography and things like that, uh, would, would be tremendously wrong to a Muslim. And yet they identify this as a Christian country. And then here you've got people praying to Mary, Mother of God, praying to these various saints. Uh, the way that some Christians in the Catholicism worship Jesus 
would be idolatrous. See, they don't believe that God can be represented by anything at all, which is really in keeping with what the Bible says. Well, look at how many of the places begin. The Catholics, after all, keep them out of the most of all the various Christian groups. They're the most numerous. Well, look at all the statues of Jesus, and they bow and and pay homage to those things, and and the beads they have, and the and the, the, the emblems of saints, and. So a lot of that looks just downright idolatrous to them. So I'm saying, given Christianity, through the eyes that they're looking at, Christianity doesn't really stack up. And so uh, with whatever the shortcomings, I can see how that Muhammad can come across as the best available, you know, given, given their background and, and what they actually know. So I think if, if we understand that, then we would approach a Muslim not with looking down on them or, or how can you believe this nonsense or, or we are so superior to you, but approach them as one that, hey, let's be honest about it. A lot that, that camouflages as Christianity in the world is not Christianity. And, and if I had to make a decision on Christianity based on Jim and Tammy and Jimmy Swaggart and the TV evangelist I've seen and the, the Roman Catholic Church and, and a lot of other things, I would not be a Christian because I don't see anything there that, that, that is uh, attractive to me. And so given that, and, and then when they differ with the Jews, they can present a very logical side. Ishmael was the father of the, it's a historical truth, the father of the Arabs. He was the first son of Abraham. Uh, he was kicked out. Jealousy was involved. And so I can see how he can come up with this, that, uh, that this, was a, they this was a perversion of the Jews when they substituted Isaac for Ishmael. You know, I can see how that they could at least uh, come up with that kind of thing. All right, now, let me read a, a few of the excerpts um, from the uh, Koran. Now, everything now is just a, a direct quote. This is from the cow, first chapter. Now, why that's that name, uh, you know, I haven't got that far. I just know that's name. Uh, this book is not to be doubted. Okay, that's a good way to start off. This book is not to be doubted. It is a guide for the righteous who have faith in the unseen and are steadfast in prayer, who bestow charity, a part of what we have given them, who trust what has been revealed to you and to others before you and firmly believe in the life to come. These are rightly guided by their Lord. These shall surely triumph. As for unbelievers, it is the same whether or not you forewarn them. They will not have faith. God has set a seal on their hearts and ears. Their sight is dimmed. Grievous punishment awaits them. So notice now, these people are going to be punished, but, but the reason they can't have faith is because God has set a seal on them and he sealed their eyes so they can't have faith, but yet grievous punishment is awaiting them. There are some who declare we believe in God in the last day, yet they are no true believers. They seek to deceive God and those who believe in him, but they deceive none save themselves though they may not perceive it. There is a sickness in their hearts which God has aggravated. They shall be sternly punished for the lies they told. And see, in this, implications there to Christians and Jews, that we claim to believe in God in the last day, but we're really not the true believers. Doesn't that kind of sound like predestination too? Like the unbeliever, he's just going to be lost. But... God has put a seal on his heart. Well, they believe in a sovereign God that perfectly controls, you know, every everything. But yet it's interesting because we, that, they, I mean, that, they believe also in individual decision and all. I don't know what, I'm not sure. 
you know, how he means it right there, but that same kind of language is used in the Bible, isn't it? The mm-hmm. in their heart. So, I mean, that's not so... I mean, no, but he, de- he he uses it. Uh, he he definitely sounds as if means it, he's he read it that way. Read some from the scriptures uh, and misinterpreted it and wrote this. Yeah, right. You're going to see his whole line of thinking uh, is based on uh, misinterpretation or misunderstanding of various concepts, uh, various things in the Bible. We're going to talk about John the Baptist and Jesus and all, but a uh, tremendous part of the thinking is based on that. Uh, when it is said to them, "Do not commit evil in the land." They reply, we do nothing but good. But it is they who are the evildoers, though they may not perceive it. And when it is said to them, believe as others believe, they reply, are we to believe as fools believe? It is they who are the fools, if they but knew it. When they meet the faithful, they declare, we too are believers. But when alone with their devils, they say to them, we follow none but you. We were only mocking. God will mock them and keep them long in sin, blundering blindly along. Such are those that barter guidance for error. They profit nothing, nor are they on the right path. They are like the one who kindled a fire, but as soon as it lit up all around him, God put it out, and he was left in darkness. I think you can see right away on that. It's not the easiest thing in the world to understand exactly what he is saying. And a lot of times he just seems to, keep in mind, he is just rambling. You're not reading from an educated person. And he's just had his seizure, and he's thinking and meditating. Now he begins to ramble on, and, and this is being recorded as the, the oracles of God. Okay, next, uh, this is from the section on the Imrans. Those that deny God's revelation shall be sternly punished. God is mighty and capable of revenge. Nothing on earth or in heaven is hidden from God. It is he who shapes your bodies and your mother's wombs as he pleases. There is no God but him, the mighty, the wise one. It is he who has revealed to you the book. Some of its verses are precise. Now, this book is the Koran. The Koran means the book. That's the little meaning of the word. Bible means the book. Uh, it is he who has revealed to you the book. Some of its Now, notice this. Some of its verses are precise in meaning. They are from the foundation of the book. Other verses are ambiguous. Those whose hearts are infected with disbelief will follow the ambiguous part so as to create dissension by seeking to explain it. But one, no one knows the meaning except God. So some of the verses are, are specifically ambiguous and nobody knows the meaning except God. Those who are well grounded in knowledge say we believe in it and it's all from the Lord. But only the wise take heed. Lord, do not cause our hearts to go astray after you have guided us. Grant us your own mercy. You are the magnificent giver, Lord. You will surely gather all men before you upon a day, and that will undutably come. God will not break his promise. As for the unbelievers, neither their riches nor their children will in the last save them from God's wrath. They shall become the fuel of fire like them. Pharaoh's people and those before him denied our revelations. Therefore, God smote them in their sinfulness. God is stern in retribution. Say to the unbelievers, you shall be overthrown and driven into hell, an evil resting place. Indeed, there was a sign for you in two armies which met on the battlefield. One was fighting for the cause of God, the other the host of unbelievers. The faithful saw with their very eyes that they were twice their own number. But God strengthened with his aid whom he will. Surely that there was a lesson for the discerning. So he's saying when we went into battle, 
and we won, there's a lesson there for the discerning. Okay? This is on a section called women. Now notice this. Men have authority over women because God has made men superior and because they spend their wealth to maintain them. So men are superior and they have authority because they are superior and they also spend their wealth maintaining women. Good women are obedient. They guard their unseen parts because God has guarded them. As for those from whom you fear disobedience, admonish them and send them to beds and beat them. And so women are to be obedient because men are superior and men spend their wealth on them. And if the woman is disobedient, you are to admonish them, send them to their beds and beat them. Then if they obey you, take no further action against them. God is high and supreme. Sounds reasonable. Yeah. <laughs> I okay. think I'm going to become a, a Muslim tomorrow. <laughs> oh. Obviously, uh, I bet they can learn a lot of women. Uh, <laughs> well, actually, this concept is the Arab. Uh, in other words, what you see in Muhammad saying this, this is the Arab concept towards women. I mean, the the man is totally superior. Uh, he can beat his wife. Uh, he can have a plurality of wives. Remember the film that was made not too long ago about the lady from uh, yeah. um, Iran that had married the doctor and he took her back over there? And mm -hmm. then, um, um, now, another thing is, people don't just read the Koran every day. It's sort of like people here in America reading the Bible, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, like, nobody would probably... I mean, there's not... There's, how many would you say... Just sit down and, and read through that and can see the scripture that says that women are whatever. Well, they, whatever. the interesting thing is that uh, more Muslims probably read the Quran oh, and have it read. Here, see, they, now when they read it, they're not, in other words, they wouldn't believe you have the right to interpret it. Only these, in, these people that were back at the time of Muhammad and heard his views can actually interpret it. But they believe it is literally word for word the words of God and a uh, the best preacher is one that has memorized the most yeah. verses. That's more important than I, But in their reading it, they concentrate more on just reading exactly what it says and in quoting it than they actually think about it. In other words, they're, they're not okay. really taught, according to the sources I've read, to actually think about it and challenge it. They're taught it is the Word of God, and you read it from the standpoint of seeing exactly what it says and, and doing it. You know, and not, not from the standpoint of analyzing it and, and thinking about how logical it is and things like that. How could he say that when he married that rich woman and she supported him while he was I don't know. That's interesting. I, that's, that's interesting. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if he ever beat her or what, you know. But, uh, He's probably beating her out of her money. That was actually probably the exception to the rule. For the most part, for the, most part the men paid a dowry to get the woman. They actually contracted. Of course, that was all through, you know, in the antiquity, through Old Testament times and all. And there's a statement in here somewhere, I can't remember if I marked this one or not, where that if you decide you don't want a wife, uh, you know, that you don't, uh, whatever was involved in wealth from her parent or anything, you don't keep that, you know. But, uh, but yet, you know, it makes it clear that you can decide that you don't want her at any time. That's your business, you know. Hmm. Okay. He that obeys the apostle <coughs> obeys God. As for those that pay no heed, know then that we have not sent you to be their keeper. They promise to obey you, but as soon as they leave you, a number of them plot in secret to do otherwise than what you bade them. 
God takes note of all their plots. Therefore, let them be and put your trust in God. God is all sufficient guardian. Will they not ponder on the Koran? If it had not come from God, and I mark this because I'd use this if I was talking with a, a Muslim. Ponder on the Koran. If it had not come from God, they could have surely found many contradictions. Well, that's an observation that if it wasn't from God, surely, the, in other words, he's saying there's no contradictions in here as an evidence. So that would be a good place to sit down and, 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 and see what about this in, in the way of contradiction. Right, right, so. right. No contradictions, though, just some ambiguous so, verses. Just ambiguous. Not supposed to try to interpret Okay, now, fight for the cause of God. You are accountable for none but yourself. Rouse the faithful. Perchance God will overthrow the might of the unbelievers. God is mightier and more translucent than they. And, and all the way through here, you know, he definitely is not backward about fighting, you know. But keep in mind, again, showing the, uh, the Old Testament. Remember when the Israelites went into the land of Canaan, they were told to conquer it and to drive out the unbelievers and to, and to totally replace them and all. So what the Muslims do in that is exactly what the Israelites were told to do in the, in the land of Canaan. That makes you very uncomfortable. Mm. All right, now, God will not forgive idolatry. He will forgive whom he will all other sins. He that serves other gods besides God has strayed far indeed. They pray to mere females. They pray but to a rebellious Satan. God has laid his curse on Satan, for he said... I shall entice a number of your servants and lead them astray. I shall arouse in them vain desires and order them to slit the ears of the cattle. I shall order them to tamper with God's creation. Indeed, he that chooses Satan rather than God for his protector ruins himself beyond redemption. He makes promises and steers up in them vain desires. Satan makes them promises only to deceive them. Hell shall be their home, whom from it they shall find no refuge. As for those that have faith and do good works, we shall admit them to gardens varied by running streams, and there they shall abide forever. Such, notice now how the salvation is based on good works. Such is God's true promise. Who has a truer word than God? It shall not be in accordance with your wishes, nor shall it be as the people of the book desires. He that does evil shall be requited with evil. He shall find none to protect or help him. And so if somebody does evil, requite with evil, he shall find none to, none to help him. But the believers who do good works, both men and women, shall enter paradise. They shall not suffer the least injustice. And who has a nobler religion than he who surrenders himself to God and does what is right and follows the faith of saintly Abraham? Well, now think of that. Uh, who has a nobler religion then one who surrenders himself to God, that's the word Islam, surrender, and does what is right and has faith like Abraham. Well, you can see how that is a logical concept. Surrender to God, have faith like Abraham, do what's right. Well, that has to sound, you know, be pleasing to God. In fact, except you have a different interpretation, you, you would acknowledge, you know, that, that concept there. All right, now, on the one hand, salvation or paradise is got by works and hell is because of being evil but they do believe in forgiveness based on repentance 
In other words, there's no need for a sacrifice. It's you repent of your sins and God forgives you. Is that what they pray for when they pray five times a day? Or are they praising God? Or they, they thank God for his blessings. Uh, they ask for his providential care. They pray for success. They pray for his will to be done. Uh, they ask, if, if whenever they sin, they ask for remission of sins. Uh, they, they believe that God is sovereign, that he providentially cares for them. Uh, the many of the very same concepts that, that we would have and their, their prayers would depict him. By the way, when we said that one of the tenets of their faith was that, you know, they prayed five times a day, that don't mean they limited it to five times a day. It's just they got those five formal times, times a day that only once a week do they have to go to a mosque in a, in a congregational gathering, and that's on Friday. And the other times, I mean, they may go to the mosque, but they don't have to. Also, another thing was interesting, that for the most part, it's only the men that go and pray. If you notice them when they pray, in the book, it spells out not just that they pray, but how to pray, their position of their feet, their hands, and everything. You know they get all the way down on the ground, and they bend all the way over. And so because that would not be appropriate posture in a public situation for a woman, a woman does not pray publicly, you know, for that reason. So in the mosque, it's the men that are praying like that, but then the women are to pray at, at home. But most of the assembly and all centers around the, around the men. Um, one thing before you go on. Um, I read in, I guess, the Josh McDowell book that the, the people, the Muslims, don't like for the Koran to be translated into other languages. Is that, I mean, they'd, like that wouldn't be, they wouldn't accept this, what you're reading and all. Well, they have, uh, they, they would prefer, in other words, the Aramaic is just a godly language to them. They're with the Aramaic, like some people are with the King James Bible. And right, mm. they would prefer... But Islam translated his other version of that, a yeah. Muslim. So. They, uh, the, they would believe, in other words, they, they, have, they don't have any problem with this, but they believe the superior is the Aramaic. That's the original. And, and it's sort of like, really... Maybe similar to ours, uh, we recognize the translations, but the original is it's the Greek and the Hebrew. Yeah. And so they look at the Aramaic. In other words, that it's good to read this, but if we're going to really get down to the nitty-gritty and, and get specific, and we better get well, to the Aramaic. When like, they gather over here in America and everything, the Muslims and all, they would read from an English version or whatever then, right? Like you see mm -hmm. what I'm saying, how the, the Muslims here and all the most you know, majority be black, I guess, would you know, right. they wouldn't learn Aramaic just to, to read their Quran in, yeah, in the original they do too. Or would they? I don't I know. I think they I think their feeling on it would be just like the Jews in Hebrew, the that although the Old Testament is in English, the Jews actually teach their young people Hebrew and they they read it in Hebrew in the same way the Catholic used to read it in Latin. And I believe that they actually they encourage the learning. If you read it in the Aramaic, they call it magic and there's a couple of black people magic. that were yeah, they said it's like magic. Yeah. And they, there's they're, a couple of black people there that were Native Americans. You know, I mean, like they, they were born here, raised here. It was a man and a woman in the library. And uh, they were talking about So I asked them some questions about it. And they were both apparently learning Aramaic. And uh, this this guy apparently was a leader in the, the group. But they, they apparently the corn in Aramaic, they consider like, like magic is the way they, they say. And, uh, well, see, they look at the words as being holy. Old Testament, these five books you were talking about, that uh, the meat you're supposed to eat, they go by that, just the letter. Right. They, they no pork. A shelled fish, a 
pork to them like the pig. They, it's just as disgusting as eating a dog is to us. I mean, they, they just... Well, I noticed also when I was reading in here about the incestuous laws, it sounds like a quotation from the law of Moses. So they evidently do learn. The incestuous regulations about not marrying close kin and all, it sounds like a direct quote from the law of Moses, you know. In other words, he obviously had contact with that. And just like Tim said, they follow that health code yeah, well, meticulous. They, that's actually where they get it. They, those first five books, they actually have, uh, they teach. You know, well, those, uh, those that's another reason. With from a Christian standpoint, see, they uh, that when when they think of us and just the eating of pork, we eat unclean food. Uh, the Jew would be closed much yeah, closer to us. Yeah, it's real disgusting to him. Like I, I took this Mustafa to sweats, and just the fact he said he went there once before and they had pig's feet, and just the idea that he left the restaurant and didn't eat anything. This time they had pork, but you know I didn't get any pork because I didn't want to offend him or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyhow, you know, he ate uh, the beef tips. Oh. No, I ate beef tips, and he ate the fish. He ate the fish. He, but apparently, they have like a, a order, and, and beef's good, but even better than that, the fish is like you know better. Yeah. That, it's just unusual. Their their beliefs, but you know they. So they probably do learn. Then that's what my question was. They probably wouldn't even use, may not use English translation in their services or whatever. They would actually. Well, I can't speak from you know experience on that, know. so I would I would know. I do know that they teach the Aramaic. And they consider it the better, uh, the better, right? In other words, and they would encourage that in the same way the Jews do the Hebrew, you know. I know the Davis Kid Bookstore didn't keep a lot of copies of the Koran on hand, so it didn't look like people were coming in and buying them by the dozens or anything. So they only have one or two copies of each yeah. version yeah, on the like shelf. Whereas in, in the Bibles, they have like a whole section that's every different kind of Bible you yeah. imagine. Of course, yes. I imagine if you get on farther north and. Yeah. Um, well, well, if it, it was in, me how in the very small small it was, that one, because like there were yes, one of those, there was only one copy. Well, of keep in mind, there's there's only three million Muslims in the U.S. But United whole I'd United States. I would say there's half as many, maybe even as many Muslims at TSU as there are Christians. Really? Just because there's such an Arab population and yeah. the black population combined, which they already over. Their own copies over too. But uh, yeah. it's it's. Uh, yeah, the foreigners would buy an English translation. I don't guess. Okay, now here's, this section is on dealing with Mary and Jesus and John the Baptist. What's the name of it? It's called, just called Mary. Uh, it starts off again, in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. An account of your Lord's goodness to his servant, Zacharias. He invoked his Lord in secret, saying, My bones are enfeebled and my head glows silver with age. Yet never, Lord, have I prayed to you in vain. I now fear my kinsmen who will succeed me, for my wife is barren. Grant me a son who will be my heir and an heir to the house of Jacob, and who will find grace in your sight. Rejoice, Zacharias, came the answer. You shall be given a son, and he shall be called John, a name no man is born before him. How shall I have a son, Lord, asked Zacharias, when my wife is barren and I am well advanced in years? He replied, Such is the will of your Lord. It shall be no difficult task for me, for I brought you into being when you were nothing before. Lord, said Zacharias, give me a sign. Your sign is that for three days and three nights, he replied, you shall be bereft of speech, though otherwise sound in body. Then Zacharias came out from the shrine and exhorted his people to give glory to the Lord in the morning and evening. All right, you can see again how he's very familiar with that, with that text there. But he got three days, whereas we've got... 
till he was born. Right. Not only that, uh, he didn't ask for a sign. He just didn't believe uh, the angel, and, and then he was told he wouldn't speak. You shall recount in the book the story of Mary, how she left her people. Now he's referring back to the Gospels when he says, and you shall recount in the book, going back to the Gospels. Mary, how she left her people and betook herself a solitary place to the east. We sent to her our spirit in the semblance of a full-grown man. And notice this. We sent to her our spirit in the semblance of a full-grown man. And when she saw him, she said, May the merciful defend me from you. If you fear the Lord, lead me and go your way. I am the messenger of your Lord, he replied, and have come to give you a holy son. How shall I bear a child, she answered, when I am a virgin, untouched by man? Such is the will of your Lord, he replied. That is no difficult thing for him. He shall be a sign to mankind, okay, says the Lord, and a blessing from ourself. This is our decree. By the way, this ourself and all is Gabriel. See, uh, Gabriel is a spokesman for God talking to uh, Muhammad. So he'll believe in angels. Then. Oh, yeah. Gabriel's the one giving this information. Oh, they have strong belief in angels. Gabriel's the one that told Muhammad everything. Yeah, right. Gabriel is the one. Um, well, remember, Gabriel was sent to uh, Zacharias and also to Elizabeth, you know. Uh, Thereupon she conceived him and retired to a far-off place. And when she felt the thrones of childbirth, she lay down by the trunk of a palm tree, crying, O oh, would that I had died and passed into oblivion. But a voice from below cried out to her, Do not despair. Your Lord has provided a brook that runs at your feet. And if you shake the trunk of this palm tree, it will drop fresh ripe dates in your lap. Therefore eat and drink and rejoice. And should you meet any mortal, say to him, I have vowed a fast to the merciful and will not speak with any man today. Carrying the child, she came to her people, who said to her, Mary, this is indeed a strange thing. Uh, sis sister of uh, Aaron, uh, okay, your father was never a whoremonger, nor was your mother a harlot. In other words, they're talking about the fact that she's not married and she's pregnant. She made a sign to them, pointing to the child. But they replied, How can we speak with a babe in the cradle? Whereupon he spoke and said, Now notice now, Jesus is in a cradle. She's had the babe. And so notice he speaks from the cradle. Whereupon he spoke and said, I am the servant of God. He has given me the book and ordained me a prophet. His blessing is upon me wherever I go, and he has commanded me to be steadfast in prayer and to give alms to the poor as long as I live. He has exhorted me to honor my mother and purged me of vanity and wickedness. I was blessed on the day I was born, and blessed I shall be on the day of my death. And may peace be upon me on the day when I shall be raised to life. All right, now notice now, he was purged of vanity and sin. They acknowledged Jesus as having lived a perfect life. They acknowledged Jesus as having been born of a virgin. But then notice also they throw in this little incident of he's talking from the cradle and saying that he is a, is a prophet of God. Such was Jesus, the son of Mary. Uh, and so at least you can see that Muhammad, whatever he had heard about the teaching in life or however much he had read, he had at least come to the, to, to the conclusion that he lived a sinless life. And that's interesting. Such was Jesus, the son of Mary. That's the whole truth. 
which they still doubt. God forbid that he himself should beget a son. Now notice how they're talking about the Christians now. That uh, he's a prophet. God forbid that anybody would think God would have a son. When he decrees a thing, he need only say, be and it is. God is my Lord and your Lord. In other words, God didn't beget him as his son. God just said, be, and he was. What's the big deal? Yet the sects are divided concerning Jesus. But when the faithful day arrives, woe to the unbelievers. Their sight and hearing shall be sharpened on the day when they appear before us. Truly the unbelievers are in a gross error. Forewarn them of that woeful day. He's talking about Christians now here. Our decree shall be fulfilled while they heedlessly persist in unbelief. For we shall inherit the earth and all who dwell in it. To us they shall return. You shall also recount in the book of the story of Abraham. He was a saintly man and a prophet. He said to his father, How can you serve a worthless idol, a thing that can neither see nor hear? Father, things you know nothing of have come to my knowledge. Therefore follow me, that I may guide you to an even path. Father, do not worship Satan. This is Abraham talking to his father. For he has rebelled against the Lord of mercy. Father, I fear that a scourge will fall upon you from the merciful, and you will become one of Satan's ministers. He replied, Do you dare renounce my gods, Abraham? Desist from this folly, or I will stone you. Be gone from my house this instant. Peace be with you, said Abraham. I shall implore my Lord, Lord to forgive you, for to me he has been gracious, but I will not live with you or your idols. I will call on my Lord and trust that my prayers will not be ignored. When Abraham had cast off his people and the idols which they worshipped, we gave him Isaac and Jacob. Each of them we made a prophet. Okay, so Isaac and Jacob are prophets. And we bestowed on them glorious gifts and high renown. In the book, tell also of Moses, who was a chosen man. So he accepts Moses as a chosen man, an apostle and a prophet. We called out to him from the right side of the mountain. And when he came near, we communed with him in secret. We gave him our mercy, his brother Aaron, himself a prophet. In that book, you shall tell of Ishmael. Ishmael was a man of his word, an apostle and a prophet. He enjoyed prayer and almsgiving on his people, and his Lord was pleased with him. He too was a saint and a prophet, whom we honored and exalted. These are the men to whom God has been gracious, the prophets from among the descendants of Adam, and those whom we carried in the ark of Noah, the descendants of Abraham, of Israel, and those whom we have guided and chosen. For when the revelations of the merciful were recited to them, they fell down on their knees in adoration. Okay, let me see here. I didn't want to... All that was in one little section there. Uh -huh. just person to person. Yeah. Talks about see, you, you can see how he's had contact with this. He's read some things, or somebody's read it to him. There's debate over whether or not he was literate, although the, the scholars I've read from tend to believe the evidence is that he was somewhat literate, although maybe not greatly so. But he didn't necessarily write this down. Oh, no, he uttered it, and it was written down. But you can tell how that it's like a person just, sit, just talking and rambling off, that he's had contact with this, and he's thought about it. And now what he's really doing, it'd be just like you've read some material, and then somebody asks you what you think about it, and so, you, and so you tell it. And we all realize that's what you think about it. But what if you're convinced you're a prophet? And we're convinced you're a prophet. Well, then all of a sudden what you think about it becomes the Word of God. 
And so we, and so now, here you've thought about Abraham and Ishmael and, and Isaac and, and Jesus and John the Baptist and everything like that based on what you've heard, and you've come to your conclusions. And so this is, uh, this is his conclusions. A thought just occurred to me. There's no way that uh, they didn't have no computer or, or, or fast writing, you know. How did this guy take his stuff down? I mean, uh, as fast as he could say it or something. Uh, he, how did he do that? Probably set it up. Well, he set it up for 22 years. How did, Paul dictated most of his letters. Jeremiah dictated his. And see, this is... Uh, how do they take them down? This is taking place over uh, a period of from 610 to 632, 22 years' time. Well, what, about the of, <laughs> what about the speeches Very of Jesus that are recorded in the gospel? How did anybody <laughs> take them down? Well, they wrote. Well, they wrote. Okay, that's what it was. Remembered what it was. And then well, they wrote. They wrote. There was writing. I mean, we're talking about with pencil type stuff. Well, they had they had writing sources. Steve, we're in the sixth century A.D. When did this? Uh, when did this? They're writing out? and using using sources. Uh, uh, you've got the the uh, fifteen hundred Christian letters from the first century. You, you've got uh, thousands of manuscripts and versions uh, that, that that go all the way back into that time, and, and yet here we are up to five seventy in the sixth century A.D. Uh, but they definitely are writing and producing. I know they're writing. I mean, I know that. When I'm trying to figure out how fast are they writing, they're not doing it mechanically exactly as he said. That's what I'm saying. I'm thinking they could explain a lot of this stuff in the Gospels. What we what we would what we consider direct quoting and what they call quoting is not the same thing. And you know, you've pointed this out before, but I can see how now. I mean, there's no way right. that word for word they're remembering exactly what he's saying probably right now. They can't write that fast. They would remember the highlights, though, because they think it's coming from a prophet of God. Yeah. And if he says something, they're going to pay attention to it, and it's really going to make an impact on their mind. Uh, okay, they're going to remember the highlights, but word for word, I can see how okay. they could lose it a little bit. Okay, but see, another thing to keep in mind on their writing, that at a time when uh, people depended more on listening and remembering, they really trained themselves in memory. And, and really, in, uh, it's been, from all that I've read, that scholars have just been overly impressed with how much people can remember, that how that your tribal historians would, could go back and back and back, and then how they could master information and memorize. Uh, there are Muslim scholars today, alive right now, that have memorized the entire Quran if you quote it verbatim. No, I know. Okay, I know that. I'm talking about just a, a, a spontaneous a speech up there. Yeah. Okay, here's a good I can know how that. you can pretty much remember it, but I can what? see how that you wouldn't get it down exactly word for word. Possibly. Oh, yeah. Not if you're not, not, no. not with their skill. With I their believe that. Writing. Sure, I believe the same so thing. That's, that's my only point was yeah. it was providing an explanation to me of some of the right. different ways things are quoted right. in the different Gospels. Even if I'm sitting here with a pencil and paper and you're talking, I definitely am not going to get it down word for right. word. And right. There's nobody right. And there's right. no way they had the method to do that back right. then. So it was a quote to them. Today, we don't con we don't put quote marks around unless it's word for word. Right. They didn't even use quote marks. But and like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are telling exactly the same story, more or less, from memory, no doubt. All four of them. Well, memory and records, combination of memory and records, right. And so, they say and Jesus said this, but sometimes right. they phrase it differently. Right, so they're, but the, but the point... The meaning exactly. is the, the same. Well, it, what even complicates now uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is that Jesus spoke in Aramaic, and here, this, here in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the accounts we have are Greek. 
and then we translate in English. But I mean, here you are, say if you're John, writing this material in Greek that Jesus spoke in Aramaic. Well, if two people, if, if uh, Tim is going to speak in English, and you and I are going to translate it into France, into French, we can hear him say exactly the same thing, and we're not going to choose the exact same language structure and word to say what he's saying. We're just not, we're just not going to. There, there is no way you would find two translators listening to the same talk and that they would write exactly the same thing, choosing the same word. And you can see that in, you know, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's, I think that's good observation, Steve, on the thing that uh, obviously that they're not getting every single solitary word. There's somebody's writing and they're copying down. And by the way, in the critical analysis of this by the, by the, by the critics, uh, a good part of this was written down sometimes afterwards. In, in other words, there's debate among uh, some of the Muslims as to what parts to receive verbatim and what parts not because some of it was written down right away some of it was supposedly written by Muhammad himself and some of it was just that people heard Muhammad say this alright now in addition to the Quran, they have another source of the traditions and these are supposed to be just the observations that people saw in Muhammad's life and his practice and heard him say and then it was written down you know years later and it doesn't stand on quite as, yeah. It, it doesn't stand on quite as high ground as this. But the people that were in contact with him, when they wrote material about his example of life and the decisions and and things like that, it's it's sort of a second. It's below this, but it's still definitely it's 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 very valuable to them as a, as a traditional source. He died from epilepsy or from just died of a disease at the end of his life. Uh, that make, that makes sense also, like the the sermon, uh, some of the sermons, the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, and then the uh, one uh, was it Stephen in Acts? Acts gave a sermon. Uh, the sermons were probably a little bit longer. I don't know how much, but longer than what's recorded. But the, whoever was taking it down took down whatever was a significant point, probably. They felt to be, but probably not everything that was said during uh, that sermon. I, since you, I've got a question about that. How, since we're on the subject of memory and everything, Jesus didn't he say that that when he sent the Holy Spirit, he they would bring to remembrance all these things. Well, mm -hmm. does that have anything to do with the written records that we've got? You know, since we're on this topic, you, know? you you've got the promise there when he promised them the Holy Spirit that he said he will give you remembrance of these things. Right? Okay. The if you can prove from the evidence and all the, 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 the inspiration of the source, then that in turn would stand behind that statement. Right. I never use that because when you talking can, with you an unbeliever. It. Okay. It's, it's after a person has been convinced of the, the historical event of the then resurrection you and you deal with this, then you can come back and show this, but you can't start but off. You can actually say you can provide a potential explanation from just natural things like they, that everything made a big impact on their mind and they remember things and they had written down right. sources and so okay on the, the the memory thing just like with the gospels some of the people that are critical there will say well you know when they talk about memory you know of course this is written down very short after and they sometimes put down you know our memories being very fallible and all. but really if you think about the things and you made a good point on on important things that you remember Although our memory is not perfect, there are all kinds of things that happened this past week that I've forgotten, but there's things that happened years back that I remember vividly. The, the more impressive 
an event is, the more it stands in your mind. And, and you might meet a hundred people during the day, but if this one person walks up and, and pulls a gun and robs somebody right in front of you, and there's a lot of profanity and, and things like that, that event will stay in your mind and you might forget 99%. And so it's uh, in the very ways that our memory forms, the way, way our brain forms memory, when the emotions are involved, memory is greater. And that's, that's uh, but anytime your emotions are in any way involved in an event, then that is going to embed itself in your memory in a lot stronger way. And that's why sometimes at real traumatic events and all, are some experiences that people have had in wartime, like in Vietnam, places like that, that it's not the same as other memories. It was a very traumatic experience. Their emotions were all involved, and it was embedded to their mind, and it's just there. You know? uh, in the same way, don't you think that if, if, these, if Muhammad makes an utterance, that those people are going to be really in awe or something, because if it's coming from God, you sure. know, maybe that's why you could have them copying that down or whatever. Too. Well, you have more than one hearing him, and, and the fact that they believed it was the Word of God meant that they was going to try to do it as accurately as they possibly could, so far as the, the copying of it down. Uh, I'll go ahead and pause on that for tonight on the reading. I got up to page 227, and let me see how many pages in here anyway, in the book. It's 434 pages, and I got 220. That's what I thought, that I had got about halfway through it. But... Uh, it's what I did gave was a very good sample. You can see that number one, there's nothing that even uh, supposes evidence there. It's obviously just a person making assertions and, and people believe in it. Uh, we could have read more on women. Uh, we could have read more about certain things, the morality and all. Uh, you can show direct contradiction between this and especially the New Testament. Uh, but you can show some direct contradiction. You can also show some uh, problem areas within the book itself, especially on his teaching on marriage and, and things like that, where he has where he has some changes and all. But suffice it to say, there is there is just absolutely nothing there uh, in the way of any kind of evidence. It's even supposed. I mean, it's not even like they even claim something you could reject. They don't even claim anything. Another thing that has to be interesting, it, it would bother me if I thought about it, and I was a Muslim. Number one, they acknowledge miracles by Jesus. Number two, they acknowledge a perfect life. Number three, they acknowledge he was born of a virgin. Mohammed had a normal birth. He never performed a miracle, and he was not a totally virtuous person. Yet he is the final and last word in the absolute great prophet. That seems, uh, I would find that hard to buy into from there. Perspective. If they believe the Christians have distorted the picture of Jesus, though. But see, they, they at least believe from within their way. distortion, though, they still give Jesus the, in other words, Jesus well, is not Jesus the great prophet, Muhammad, Muhammad is. Totally equal. And they think uh, yeah. Elijah, I believe, even though Elijah. Well, no, Muhammad is the last. The, the Quran stands over everything. Well, Just because it's the what, last. What, this is what yeah. Mustafa right. told me. And they, they look at uh, the Quran as a continuation of the revelation that started with the Jews and the Christian and finally reached the the ultimate. Uh -huh. And this is the this is the final word right here. But and Jesus becomes a prophet. In fact, uh, they don't want Muhammad exalted as much as some Muslims. In other words, their scholars get disturbed in thinking that Muhammad is exalted too much. And, and there are people that ask, 
petition of God in the name of Muhammad and things like that. And they really don't like that. They, they actually emphasize that he was just a common, ordinary man and a vessel that God used to, to get, his, get his word across. Tim? Oh, I was just saying that Mustafa, man, I had a misunderstanding, but he told me, he's, he's a Muslim, he told me that uh, uh, all the prophets, Jesus was on the same level that Muhammad was on. They were all equal. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, he named Elijah, which I think, is Elijah come after the five books of the law, or does it mention Elijah during the Bible? They accept Elijah as a prophet, right? Yeah, uh, he, it, he said Elijah, Jesus, and uh, Muhammad, all, all yeah. equal. Right. It's just that Muhammad was the last, and this is the final word, and then there'll never be no more. You know, th this is it. Well, they're, they're looking for a savior, just like the Jews are. The, the major difference between them and the Jews are, of course, they have the, the Corinth, but another major difference is where the Jews think he'll come through the Jewish race, the Muslims think he can come through any race. Uh, well, what I've read, I haven't even read of any developed concept there, so far as a savior, their whole idea about salvation was based on works. There's no concept of any atonement uh, that's needed. Mustafa, they're they're looking for they're looking for and they're looking for a physical kingdom and everything like that. They're looking they're looking exactly what the Jews were looking for back when Jesus came. They're looking that's that's what they're looking for. Yeah. But they and they ignore they make plain statements that Muhammad was the last prophet. Yeah, well, they, I don't think they're expecting another prophet. I think they're expecting the Savior to come next. But in what sense would he be a Savior? A warrior? He warrior wouldn't be a Savior. I don't okay. know. They're looking for something. And it's, right here, here maybe. Yeah, it's, it's going to be, well, he's going to come through a people. He's going to be born just like Jesus was. Only they don't look for him to come through the, through the Jews, but they look for him to come through the seed of Abraham. He could be a Jew or an Arab or anything for that matter. They look for him to come through the seed of Abraham. But his Savior couldn't be like an atonement. He would have to be like to deliver the the Arabs out of their misery or something like that. But uh, it, it would have because to go to heaven. You absolutely have to be a Muslim. I don't, I don't know no. what they're, they're looking, looking for, for but they're definitely looking either. for another, another man to come. Well, the Jews believe that, uh, of course, you were forgiven. And I'm saying that's all. They base heaven on your good deeds, and then they, they believe you can repent. Later. Yeah. To reestablish right. Israel as the great nation. Right. And maybe that's the same thing. But I'm saying they, they have no concept of a Savior in the sense of remission of sins. That. When, yeah, the, when no. the Jew uses the term Savior, he doesn't mean it like a Christian does. No, well, they don't say Savior. I'm just saying they're still looking for someone to come. They're looking for, for someone from God to come through the seed of Abraham. It's something that the prophets have been pointing towards. Just like the Jews are still looking for Jesus to come. You know what I mean? It's, it's not, they're real similar to the Jewish faith, I think, in that in the, they both go to the old law. What's that because Mustafa from I don't know. He's he's a, a supporter of the PLO, and he's from uh, you know his his family's from Palestine. And uh, Yasser Arafat, he thinks he's a great guy. So what kind of that He is know. not a he's not a Shiite Muslim. Uh, he's not no he's not militaristic. No, no, just like you said though, there's some there's probably so many different kinds. They yeah. This could be a side belief or something. It doesn't sound like the Shiite or the Sunni, and that's the two dominant ones. Uh, Sounds like he's been influenced by. I was just going to say, he liked the corn. I think most of them like these two blacks I'm talking to. Apparently, they really stay the corn. But Mustafa himself, 
I don't even think he's read the Quran. He's had people tell him about it and had people read it to him, but I don't think he's ever read the Quran. That's interesting. Uh, of course, really, it, there are people that profess Christians who've never really read the Bible. Yeah, his is probably real different because, as far as most people have a lot of traditions, you know, you go to, go to church and stuff like that, and the people around you form a lot of traditions. He's not a citizen of Kuwait, but his dad parents moved to Kuwait in '39, and he was born and raised in Kuwait, and he's still a citizen of, of Palestine. You know the interesting thing. So being away from there's home, a lot of Palestinians in Kuwait. You, you mentioned Tim that he hadn't read the Quran. I think one of the greatest things I would encourage any professing Muslim to read it. To, to read it is to see a lot of the shortcomings well, I asked of it. Some questions, and he never came right out and said he didn't read it. But it was like admitting something like, you know, you'll say sometimes, well, you don't don't read the Bible like you really should, something like that. It was, it was a statement to that effect. I can't imagine, remember the exact statement. But it's like these two blacks are in too. And Mustafa says the exact same thing. That magic is a real common word they use. They say like, in the they said uh, the translations is good, but in the original Aramaic that the uh, you know Quran's magic. It's, it's just like magic.